This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits, and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com slash star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, 7 months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And I thank you for joining us. It's springtime and we're getting close to Memorial Day weekend. And for some, that means heading back to the shore. Well, for the past two summers, I've noticed a surging population of bunny rabbits at the shore. Apparently, there was a growing number of foxes, so they were trapped, and it led to bunnies doing what they do so well. They multiplied. Since Easter just passed, I thought it would be timely to share this because even though they are so cute, we know that they carry ticks and could cause Lyme disease. Joining us today is an internationally recognized expert in the topic of Lyme disease. Dr. Brian Fallon, professor of psychiatry with a master's degree in public health, which is especially important to know because he's the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. He's also the director for the study of neuroinflammatory disorders and biobehavioral medicine at New York State Psychiatric Institute in New York. As I mentioned, he's recognized internationally for his research on neurologic and neuropsychiatric Lyme disease. He's won countless awards for his research and teaching. He has a primary focus on the mechanisms and treatment for persistent cognitive impairment, fatigue, and pain among patients with known Lyme disease and other tick-borne diseases. And he's also a leader in other areas of study, including obsessive compulsive disorder and hypochondriasis. Welcome, Brian. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Marianne. Glad to be here. The work you do is fascinating, but also very practical. Let's start with the basics about Lyme disease, and then I'd love to give you some time to explain how your expertise as a psychiatrist has led to your interest and research in Lyme disease. Sure. Well, the basics about Lyme disease is, number one, it's a a bacterial disease. It's called a spirochete uh, that's located, resides within a tick. So if you get bitten by a specific kind of tick called Ixodes scapularis or the black-legged tick, which is very common in the United States, specifically common in the Northeast, the Atlantic coastal area, the upper Midwest, 
And in California and the, and the West Coast, they have uh, Ixodi-specificus tick, which also carries uh, Lyme disease and other similar um, organisms, tick-borne organisms. So, so if you're bitten by one of these ticks, um, you're at risk of getting Lyme disease, but you're also at risk of getting other diseases that that tick might carry. So some of those other diseases would include uh, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, Borrelia miyamotoi, and rarely a virus called Powassan virus. So ticks can be very mm -hmm. uh, problematic, and uh, we have to be very aware of that because especially in the springtime, the ticks are quite prevalent uh, in the woods where you go hiking, along the shore in the reedy grasses. Um, and as you're walking by these grasses, the ticks will sense that you're walking by either through your, the heat that emanates from your body or the carbon dioxide that emanates from your breath and will be attracted to you and might just crawl up your leg and uh, take a bite. Even that's interesting because they don't jump or fly like other bugs or... Sorry. That's the White House calling me for advice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm busy. Um, but they, they're there. You sometimes don't even feel it. So it's really good. And so we're saying now if bunnies, bunnies are all over the beach in the, um, uh, you know, the grass that lines the entrance to the beach. So people need to be aware to check themselves, check their children. So mm -hmm. small, yes, that's right. So small mammals can be uh, harbors of the Borrelia spirochete. Um, and most commonly, it's the mice uh, that carry the spirochetes. So the ticks get uh, attached to the mice, and the mice are the carriers of the Borrelias, and the ticks have a blood meal. They suck up the blood of, from the mouse or the rabbit in, in that case, uh, and then the tick is infected. And then if the tick takes another blood meal from a human, uh, then transmits whatever is inside the belly of that mm. tick into the human. So just as a, one thing you said just a few moments ago was that you don't tend to feel the tick bite. And that's really important. Uh, and so the ticks are really smart. They uh, have a certain anesthetic agents that gets secreted in their saliva that makes it you can't feel it. So it's not like it's going to cause itching because it doesn't and you don't feel it bite. So that's why it's so easy to get unless you do uh, tick checks. So there are ways of prevention that we can talk about later. Um, but um, it really is transmitted by the tick. That's the most important thing. Well, it's fascinating, too. We had a nice conversation the other day. We know the origin of the name Lyme, L-Y-M-E, named after Old Lyme, Connecticut. Why don't you tell us a little about that? Because it it's really a credit to the mothers who figured out the pattern here. Let's talk about that for yeah, a minute. Yeah, I love that. I love that story. And it, and. It, Old Lyme is this gorgeous section of Connecticut. That's it's an old artist's colony, um, so it's a very peaceful, bucolic, quiet setting. And there were two mothers in Old Lyme, Connecticut, in the in the early mid nineteen seventies, who started to notice that too many children were being diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Um, one of those mothers, Polly Murray. Um, had contacted the health authorities in Connecticut, the public health authority, and finally the public health authorities called her back, asked for the story, found it really interesting because you're not supposed to have a cluster of juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. Now, why would Polly Murray know that? It's only because she's a smart, intelligent woman who is an artist, 
but was worried about her own children as well as her neighbor's kids. Didn't a couple uh, of her children have it? Yes, a number of her children had Lyme disease, and uh, and you know so they were really ailing with severe pain or swollen joints. So she wanted an answer, and finally uh, that led to the public health authorities contacting Yale and the Yale researchers uh, in rheumatology. So there was a young researcher there who had just come back from a fellowship in epidemiology from NIH, uh, which is the study of disease and populations, and. So uh, he was asked to investigate. So he went out to Old Lyme, Connecticut. This was Alan Steer. Um, and uh, Alan Steer is perhaps the most famous now, the most famous Lyme disease doctor in, in the world because he was the first one to uh, describe the disease in the literature. Um, and that was, in the, that was in 1976, 1977, that the papers started to come out. And as you can imagine, it was terrifying for the people of Old Lyme, Connecticut, because oh, here sure. was this peaceful, beautiful place that all all of a sudden is is being afflicted with this plague about which they didn't really understand. Because at that time, they didn't know that it was transmitted by ticks. They didn't know that you could treat it with antibiotics. So initially, there were these big fights between the rheumatologists and uh, some other doctors who were saying that it's that you treat with one, one group of doctors who had consulted with people from Europe, some infectious disease doctors from Europe says, the European doctors said, this sounds like what we have in Europe called erythema chronica migrans, and you treat it with antibiotics and it goes away, mm. uh, then you don't have a problem. So uh, that doctor who was at the uh, naval base in Connecticut um, was recommending antibiotics. The Yale doctors were initially recommending aspirin and other anti-inflammatories until finally they came to an agreement after a couple of years that yes, you need antibiotics to treat Lyme disease because this is a bacterial illness. And in 1981, Willie Bergdorfer, who was a tick surgeon, identified that inside the tick was this spiral-shaped organism, the, mm. the spirochete that causes Lyme disease. So that was how, that was the initial story. It was a fascinating story. And I thank the mothers of Old Lyme, Connecticut, for bringing it to the attention of the public health authorities. And I think that's a lesson, too. This is a woman who uses the other side of her brain. She's an artist, but she has logic. And she says, arthritis is not contagious. That's right. She said, no sense. So thank you to that yes. mom, because she's probably saved thousands and thousands of people. So we have about a minute in this first segment left. There are three, well, the most common time of year then is late spring, early summer, when the tick is a little teeny weeny nymph or like a little bigger than the head of That's a pin, right. so easy to miss. So if you're going to get bitten by a tick, you're a little bit luckier if it's into the fall when they're bigger, easier to see. But there are three phases that we're going to talk about in the next segment. Early localized, early disseminated, late Lyme, and then the post-treatment Lyme. So early localized basically means the tick attaches to your skin, uh, excretes the whatever's in its body. And if the Lyme spirochete is there, that's where you get a localized infection on your skin. You might get, if you're lucky, you'll get this spreading rash. Now, most people think of the Lyme rash as a bullseye rash. It is not commonly a bullseye rash. 80% of the time, it's a solid colored red or pinkish rash. The key thing about the rash is that it expands in size to greater than two inches. It could go be as big as 12 inches or I dinner plate that. size. Yeah. But, um, but the key thing is that it expands. Sometimes people, at, when they get bitten by a tick, you get a local irritation, and that's not a Lyme rash. Let's pick up after the break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Brian Fallon. 
Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Hi, I'm Dr. Denny Carice, Chief Science Officer at Recovery Centers of America, and I'm here as your addiction expert. I get asked a lot, how do people overcome addictions? Is there all different kind of ways? Can some people just quit? Why do some people need a bunch of treatment? The reality is there is a small number of people who use addictively that can quit on their own. In a study where we asked, did you used to have a problem with drugs or alcohol but no longer do, and found out that 20% of people that say they used to have a problem were able to quit on their own. They didn't need any treatment or anything else. And we see that too with the Vietnam vets. There's a whole cadre of Vietnam vets that used opium and black tar heroin in Vietnam in an addictive way that just kind of quit on the way home and it never was a problem for them again. Importantly, there's a whole other cohort of Vietnam vets for whom opioids is still a problem today. So you don't know if you're in that 20% or not. There's a bunch of people who quit with the help of their church or the help with 12-step groups or other support groups. And then a vast majority of people need some kind of treatment, whether that's outpatient treatment or residential care. And some people need detox to safely get the drugs out of their body. The only thing to know about detox though is that you don't want detox alone. That's usually five to seven days. And when people do that, they get all the drugs out of their body. They're at very high risk of relapse when they go back out. They don't have tolerance. They use the same amount of drugs and they tend to overdose. It's a very dangerous thing. So some people can do it on their own, but it's a very small percent and you never know if you're gonna fall into that group, right? And then some people need modest treatments. Some people need very long-term treatment. Whatever it is you need though, it's important to know that there is help out there. The best predictor that somebody will get into recovery from drugs and alcohol is treatment. Interesting though, the best predictor that someone will stay in recovery long-term and maintain recovery is participation in support groups like AA, NA, and other recovery support groups. If you or a loved one has a problem with alcohol or drugs, call 1-888-RECOVERY today or go to recoverycentersofamerica.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. That number again is 1-888-RECOVERY. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. In excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction, you are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1 888 Recovery, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1 888 Recovery now. And we're back on your radio doctor with Dr. Brian Fallon, our guest from Columbia University. Our topic today is Lyme disease. Brian, you were talking about a classic rash. If you're lucky and you're bitten by a tick and happen to contract Lyme disease, 
you're lucky if you get a lesion that draws your attention to a tick you may not have seen. Where do we go from there? The rash usually occurs within seven to 14 days, but can range anywhere from three to 30 days. And lots of things can give a rash, but you want to tell your doctor, and you were saying that this typically expands as big as a dinner plate. I mean, I've never heard it could be that big. So tell us a little more, if you would, about that. Yeah, the rash is really important to be able to recognize. And just remember, it doesn't have to be a bullseye. But if it is a bullseye, you're really lucky because everybody will say, wow, you've got this target target lesion that looks like a bullseye. But if you don't get the bullseye, remember, most of the Lyme rashes are not bullseyes. But they're large expand, or they're not necessarily large, but two inches or more uh, in size. Uh, That would be consistent with uh, a Lyme rash. I'm going to hold you for a second there. What we mean by a bullseye, for those of you who can't visualize, it starts as a where the tick bites, it's red, and you say it usually stays as a solid lesion, but sometimes as they spread, the center stays red and the skin around it clears as that that wave. It's almost like you drop a penny in the pond and that ripple goes out. So as the outer uh, circle grows, the inner, so you see this red dot in the middle with clear skin and then a red circle. So, yeah. it, you know, if you're lucky, you get that red flag kind of. Well, and once that rash starts, oftentimes people start to feel flu-like symptoms or viral-like symptoms. They start to feel mm. feverish. They feel they get, some might get significant headaches or neck pain. Uh, prominent fatigue. And the fatigue can really be quite dense where they feel like they have to sleep 12 or 14 hours a day. Um, they might feel joint pains. Some patients get lymphadenopathy, some some don't. That's not usually prominent. Um, but it is, you don't usually get upper respiratory symptoms like a runny nose. That's not a Lyme symptom. Pharyngitis is usually not a Lyme symptom. Rarely you might see a pharyngitis, but it's really, if you have a pharyngitis or you have a runny nose, it's probably you have some other viral illness. Um, but Lyme disease is a bacterial illness. It's not a viral illness. And Lyme disease can be treated with antibiotics. So that's really important because if you treat it early at the time of the initial infection, which might manifest with the rash if you're lucky enough to see it, or if you don't see it, your first symptoms might be really bad viral-like symptoms that last and last for five days, 10 days, and nobody knows what it is. And you go to the doctor and if they don't test you for, they might test you for Lyme, let's say. They ask you, they they ask you about the rash sure, and the let's rash hope. you don't remember. And then they do a blood test and your blood test comes back negative. And then they say, oh, you don't have Lyme disease. And the problem is that you actually might well have Lyme disease, but it takes about two to three weeks for the antibodies to form. So if you do that initial screening test, the Lyme ELISA, it's going to come back negative most often during the first two to three weeks. So if you do get this viral-like illness, you should retest, and it comes back negative, you should retest in uh, four to six weeks because it may well be positive at that time. And your clinician probably will not tell you to, because they don't think that this is Lyme disease. But if it's not going away, it may well be. And if you start finding that you have other symptoms like uh, slower brain speed, you have like brain fog, or you have a hard time finding the words to say what you want to say, then the, then the Lyme disease is affecting your central nervous system. Lyme disease is a very insidious disease right. that can cause a lot of problems. So you want to take the, you want to really treat if you think it might be Lyme disease because you don't, you don't want to miss it. I wanted to interject two things. We talked about the rash and that it could spread and such, but we can also see a less, a lesser rash, I guess you call it, which the tick has saliva when 
he or she, I don't know if they're boys or girls, when the tick bites you, you can have a, a just a sensitivity rash to that, but it's smaller. It usually goes away within 48 hours. But then the other thing that comes to mind as you're talking is if the clinician seeing you doesn't think about it, maybe they'll say, hmm, viral flu-like symptoms. Your COVID test is negative. You're good to go, right? Do you think that might be happening That's these right. days as well? We have yes. to remember that Lyme is present and out there. So if we're fortunate, we put the pieces together and the person's treated at an early stage, thank goodness. What happens if it's not? What happens if the rash wasn't obvious, nobody noticed a tick, and it has disseminated or has gone? It can spread to other areas, joints, heart, even nervous system. Let's talk about that a little. That's right. So once it gets into the bloodstream, it can go anywhere in the body and it gets carried by the bloodstream to wherever it wants to go. So it could go up to right up to the brain within uh, the meninges surrounding the brain within like 10 days, it's been documented to be up there in the spinal fluid. It can go to the heart causing uh, arrhythmias uh, and that can be quite dangerous leading to death. So that oftentimes Lyme disease, rarely does Lyme disease cause death, but that's a, a one case when it gets to the heart causing a carditis, which, which can ha- cause complete heart block where a person might die. So uh, if you're having uh a feelings of palpitations or arrhythmias or, or, or slowing of your heart, abnormal beats, you should definitely go and get that evaluated right away, especially if you've been in a Lyme endemic area and if you've had, um, certainly if you've had a tick bite or a rash, definitely. Uh, one reason people might not see the rash is because oftentimes the tick bites uh, behind the knees or in the inguinal area or on your back. So that's so oftentimes it's, how, it's good to have a family member check your body for tick bites, after you've been exposed to a, a, tick, a Lyme endemic area. Now, some other symptoms, some of the neurologic symptoms are pretty dramatic as well. So you might get a full-blown meningitis where you have severe stiff neck, you have pounding headache, you have perhaps nausea and vomiting, and you definitely will go to the ER when you have that because you're so profoundly ill. Um, and in the ER, in most Lyme endemic areas, the doctors would immediately put you on antibiotics for the possibility of Lyme meningitis. Um, and when the test is done, usually the tests are positive at that time, but not always. Other symptoms that occur with neurologic Lyme would be shooting pains or stabbing pains or burning pains. So they might shoot down your legs or across your abdomen or be a, a sharp knife-like pain that goes into your back or your head. So it can be extremely upsetting to get these sharp pains. I just want to say enter Dr. Brian Fallon because as we're getting into the neurosymptoms, and I know you'll you'll bring us to that point, but. So, I mean, the neurosymptoms can also affect your cognition so that you can't think clearly. As I mentioned, people complain of brain fog. Um, it can cause psychiatric problems too. So, so sometimes early on, Lyme disease, the first symptom of it might be paranoia. And I recall one individual who had uh, waxing and waning paranoia, and then about uh, several months later, he was found totally confused on the lawn, uh, lying on the grass and calling the sky green and the grass blue. And so he was rushed to the ICU, the ER, and then admitted to the uh, ICU. And they did a spinal tap and they found that indeed he had central nervous system Lyme disease. And he was treated mm-hmm. with intravenous ceftriaxone, which is the appropriate treatment, antibiotic treatment for Lyme disease. And he got dramatically better. And so he was discharged from the hospital. But then about three weeks later, he started to get 
really significant joint pain that he hadn't had before. And then his cognitive problems returned, his thinking problems returned. He started to get quite confused again. He was readmitted to the hospital, given the ceftriaxone, and it didn't help as much this time. So the doctors didn't know what was going on. They said this must be a psychiatric problem. And so they suggested he be admitted to the uh, psychiatric unit. But his family said, this is not a psychiatric problem. This is a medical problem. He's never had any psychiatric problems before this. He needs more antibiotics. So he got taken home by his family, given more antibiotics. And eventually, he got switched to an antibiotic called minocycline, which is an oral antibiotic, and he got dramatically better. But it just that's a good example of a patient who... Um, his first manifestation was paranoia, this waxing and waning paranoia, and then a profound what's called an encephalopathy, where you're cognitively confused. And um, he was perhaps the most cognitively confused Lyme patient or patient with Lyme disease who I've ever met. Uh, but he got dramatically better with the right antibiotics. So another message is it's not always intravenous antibiotics that are the answer. It could be an oral antibiotic. And that's important to remember because intravenous antibiotics, though they can be enormously helpful and are the proper initial treatment for neurologic Lyme. It could be that something like doxycycline may be helpful. It could be that minocycline could be helpful. Um, so there's a variety of different, there's an art to the treatment of these patients that includes knowing what the literature says and also knowing from your experience what's helped other patients in the past. Exactly. And that's why we're so fortunate that someone like you who has all this experience can put it together because if we start with oral antibiotics, we doxycycline, which is a type of tetracycline, or in some cases, amoxicillin for children, right? Um, That's right. Or the ceftin, which would be the IV form. So we have about a minute left in this segment, Brian. How would you describe post-Lyme or those people that might have symptoms that linger for months? Yeah, post-Lyme refers to that that group of patients who have been treated with the appropriate course of antibiotics and often more than one course, maybe two or three courses. And they find that they're still getting waxing and waning joint pains, uh, muscle pains, very significant fatigue, cognitive, waxing and waning cognitive problems. Um, oftentimes there's anxiety and depression that accompanies it. So it's usually thought of as a combination of cognitive issues, pain, and fatigue. And it can be quite impairing. It's not it's not usually mild. It's often quite impairing. And it makes it very hard for people to function as parents, taking care of their kids, children with it, have a hard time at school, they don't want to go to school because they're so exhausted. They fall asleep in class. They're thought to be inattentive. They're thought to be oppositional. But in fact, they're sick, and it's not recognized that they're sick. Sure. So so it's really a tough illness to have when you have that post-treatment Lyme. And I'm happy to talk uh, you know, about different approaches to the treatment of post-treatment Lyme and, and why people might have persistent symptoms. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back with Dr. Brian Fallon. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. This is Emily Rubin, dietitian with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and PR Chair with the Philadelphia Academy of Dietetics and Nutrition, presenting you with the Nutrition Tip of the Week. So we're going to continue with our diet for irritable bowel syndrome, such as the low FODMAP diet. So an apple a day 
for instance, is a high FODMAP food and will send most IBS patients to their GI doctor, surprisingly. FODMAP is an acronym for a certain class of carbohydrates, which are more difficult for people, especially with IBS, to digest. So we're going to go through each initial of the FODMAPs to learn more about the diet. The F in FODMAP stands for fermentable, which are foods that the bacteria feeds on, converting it to gas, causing fermentation. The O stands for oligosaccharides, which means these are the plant fibers known as prebiotics, which feed off the beneficial bacteria in your gut. These include onions, garlics, beans, lentils, and many wheat products. The issue is many people have a sensitivity to these particular foods, which gives them the GI symptoms. The D stands for disaccharides. That is lactose, which is a fermentable sugar found in dairy and milk. And it's one of the most common food intolerances tolerances around the world. M stands for monosaccharides, which is found in fructose, which is the sugar found in fruit that actually can cause some symptoms as well. And then the P stands for polyols, which means these are sugar alcohols. And these are commonly used in a lot of sugar-free products and artificial sweeteners, such as sorbitol, mannitol, and it's also contains in, in some fruits. So foods that you can eat, it's really important to focus on foods that you can eat on this diet versus on what you can't eat. Protein foods such as meat, chicken, turkey, fish are all free of FODMAPs. But again, if these protein foods are marinated in a salad dressing with onion and garlic, it may be considered high FODMAP. Other foods people can eat, some vegetables such as lettuce, carrots, chives, fennel, eggplant, green beans, some of the fruits are strawberries, pineapple, oranges, cucumbers, kiwi fruit, some of the fats, oils, pumpkin seeds, peanuts, small amounts of almonds, and then starches, potatoes, amaranth, quinoa, brown rice, tortilla chips, and gluten-free products and bread products we do want to avoid, but you can include sourdough bread as well. It is essential to talk with a doctor or dietitian before starting a low FODMAP diet. Doctors and dietitians do not typically recommend this diet for long-term use as it can eliminate some essential nutrient-rich foods. This is why it's so important to have a balanced low FODMAP diet. This is Emily Rubin, dietitian with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and PR chair for the Philadelphia Academy of Dietetics and Nutrition, wrapping up the nutrition tip of the week. For more information, you can log on to yourradiodoctor.com. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. 
Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY. Now, your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at five, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. And we're back on your radio doctor with Dr. Brian Fallon from Columbia University. Brian, this is so helpful for people to hear. Um, let's talk about a couple practical things. If you do notice a tick on yourself, your child, your spouse, what is the proper way to remove that tick? Okay. The worst way to try to remove the tick is to try to burn it off. Don't do that. That's a huge mistake. Don't Ouch. squeeze the tick with tweezers. That would be a big mistake because basically when you squeeze the tick, the belly of the tick, you're actually, it's acting like a syringe and everything inside that belly oh. will go right through the mouth parts into the body. And the Yuck. same thing with when you try to burn it off. So don't do that. What you want to do is you want to take tweezers, slowly get those teasers as close as you can to the skin under the mouth parts and just pull up and the tick will eventually let go. But those ticks are tenacious and you really have to pull. Um, but don't squeeze, don't squeeze the uh, abdomen of the tick in particular or the neck. And then pregnant women, I think that's a special uh, category that we want to address. How do we yeah, cancel them? Mm-hmm. There's a lot. Yeah, really important. So in pregnancy, uh, amoxicillin is an antibiotic that can you, you could take safely take during pregnancy, and that you should make sure you get. So if you see a rash that might be a, a Lyme rash, definitely point it out to your clinician. And if there's a possibility that it might be Lyme disease, uh, don't bother. You, you do want to test, but it's going to be negative early on at the time of the rash. So you definitely want to treat right away. So try to find a doctor or persuade your doctor to treat you with the amoxicillin. That's really important. And I guess we, we talked a little bit about treatment. There are oral IV and IV antibiotics, depending on the case and circumstances. How do you measure the response to treatment? Uh, that's, that's a very good question. One of the biggest problems with Lyme disease is we do not have a test of active infection. So all we have are tests like the antibody test for COVID. We have antibody tests that tell you if the infection had been there, but it doesn't tell you it's there now. So as a result, you don't really know exactly when to stop antibiotics, especially if someone has persistent symptoms. Are those persistent symptoms there because there's a small amount of persistent infection triggering it? Mm -hmm. In which case, then you might want to give additional antibiotics. Is, are the persistent symptoms there because the person's immune system has gone awry because of the prior infection, as we know happens with COVID, it happens with Lyme as well. Uh, Lyme arthritis, for example, is, is a, can be a very chronic Lyme arthritis, can be a very painful and debilitating condition uh, that is an ongoing inflammation, not thought to be due to active infection. Um, so what do you do to treat? You could do some uh, immune modulating agents, which is what they use for Lyme arthritis. Uh, and there's some speculation that perhaps treatments that are useful for autoimmune neuropathies, for example, like intravenous gamma globulin therapy might be helpful for some patients with persistent recurrent 
difficult neuropathic symptoms after Lyme disease. That's an area that needs to be studied. We'd like to do that study, um, but it hasn't been done yet. So we don't really know for sure that it's, that it's effective, but it certainly sounds like it and looks like from the patients we've seen. Another reason why people might have persistent symptoms, so we talked about infection, we talked about immune, immune abnormalities. What about the brain? The brain gets affected early on with Lyme disease. We know that. And what happens? The uh, inflammation is known to occur and has been demonstrated to occur in the brain. In the micro, you get what's called microglial activation, those inflammatory markers or inflammatory cells up in the brain. And that's been shown on PET imaging studies uh, by the Johns Hopkins group. Uh, so if you've got an ongoing infl inflammation in the brain, that's going to be a problem because that's going to cause an abnormality in the neurotransmitters in the brain. So you have abnormally activated brain circuits. So that could well contribute to many of the chronic pain syndromes that patients have. Makes sense. It could easily, easily contribute to the anxiety and depression that people feel. People who have never had any problems with psychiatric issues before suddenly have a significant problem with this flood of intense anxiety, or they have uh, light and sound sensitivity, so they can't tolerate being outside in normal light. Wow. They can't tolerate being with their family or friends because sound uh, comes out to be too loud for them. So these are all alterations in the brain. So if we could find ways to correct some of those abnormally activated pain pathways and other neural pathways, that would be really helpful. And that's such a great explanation because I would guess listeners and even I, when I first looked up Lyme disease, I would think the average person who doesn't feel well, they see their primary care doc, maybe they get sent to an infectious disease doctor. You are a professor of psychiatry. How were you able to combine the help of all these disciplines, become the director of the Lyme and Tick-Borne Diseases Research Center, known internationally? How were you able to coordinate all these different disciplines and help so many people? Why? How did that come well, to that's me? Well, that's a great question, and, and you're absolutely right. I'm a very strange psychiatrist, right? How many psychiatrists, <laughs> how many psychiatrists are focused on an infectious disease? And I got interested in it because early in the 90s, 1990s, when I was, uh, I had a research fellowship from the NIH to study uh, clinical biological psychiatry, really, uh, and I was studying OCD and hypochondria. And so I learned all about how to do clinical trials and how to ask questions and try to find answers. And I was getting referred some patients who were being told they were hypochondriacs, and I knew they weren't hypochondriacs. I knew they had something else that we couldn't figure out yet. Then I started to learn about Lyme disease because family members of mine had gotten sick with Lyme disease. And I realized there's a lot that's unknown about Lyme disease. Even though they were saying then the tests are 100% accurate, it was very clear that the tests were not 100% accurate. And even though people were saying that there's no benefit to a second or third course of antibiotics, I'd seen patients get dramatically better after a second or third course of antibiotics. So I thought, well, as a researcher at Columbia, a major medical center, I should be able to apply my skills, my tools as a researcher to this really interesting disease that has psychiatric components, cognitive components, rheumatologic components, uh, and so I collaborated with colleagues. I collaborated with a neurology group. I collaborated with rheumatologists. And together we set up, and brain imaging experts, and together we set up a major NIH study in the early 2000s on Lyme encephalopathy. And we learned about a lot about what's going on in the brain of these patients. They actually, if you look at their brain, they do have areas of decreased blood flow and metabolism. Um, so it, there's no doubt that Lyme disease can be a very significant 
disease with objective problems. But there's also no doubt that people can get substantially better. The vast majority of people who are treated for Lyme disease and, tr and over time will get better. Um, now, the problem is there have been very, very few studies of how to treat patients with chronic symptoms. So I'm very happy to report that the Cohen Foundation, the Stephen and Alexandra Cohen Foundation, generously uh, gave us a $16 million grant, actually, to uh, set up a clinical center at Columbia to evaluate and treat patients with acute and chronic Lyme symptoms, as well as uh, other tick-borne diseases, and also to set up a national clinical trials network so that these clinical trials could be conducted. So we're, so I've been very busy of late. Oh, I guess so. <laughs> my goodness. But it's so exciting because I get to collaborate with my colleagues at Columbia, as well as at Hopkins and Children's National Hospital in D.C. I saw that. As well as other colleagues around the country who might be interested in working with us. We have a mm -hmm. solicitation right now. Any colleagues who are interested in putting together a pilot study proposal, we're on, on Lyme, it's, it's called uh, LymeCTN.org. Um, if you just go to LymeCTN.org, you can submit a proposal to us. And if you're interested in learning about what we're doing at Columbia, just go to our website, Columbia-Lyme.org. Well, a couple of things you mentioned, Brian. One was that you um, your original focus was on people who are uh, called hypochondriacs or hypochondriasis, which is a real psychiatric entity. And you mentioned OCD. For our listeners, most people know that means obsessive compulsive disorder and how you were able to connect those dots and you were seeing patients who were labeled with those psychiatric conditions, but maybe there was a physical explanation and there are in some cases markers, brain scans that, ha that gives you a metric to follow and say, you know what, That's this right. is a physical issue. Let's see if antibiotics, even one course can't hurt to try. And so you're opening that door to say, everybody, let's think, call on your colleagues, work together, collaborate. It's so important. This is a treatable disease. Right. And I can tell you, I've had so much fun working with scientists from around the country who are trying to understand this illness and probe the samples that we collect from our patients and find new diagnostic tests or new biomarkers, and that's happening. So it's it's really been uh, enjoyable and fun to work with the colleagues and to try to help these patients. Well, you're infusing hope for our listeners because I'm sure there are a lot of people that have had Lyme or have it now, and they know where to come. Let's take a little break, and we'll be right back to wrap up with Dr. Brian Fallon. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. 
This is a paid endorsement. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. And in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Brian Fallon, what a pleasure to have you. People have learned so much listening to our discussion about Lyme disease. What are some take-home messages for our listeners? I think the main message is to maintain hope that people can, in fact, get better. This is a treatable disease, um, but you have to know to catch it as early as possible. If you have those viral-like symptoms and you get tested for COVID and your COVID test is negative, think about Lyme disease. Um, Lyme disease could well be causing your symptoms. And if you go to your doctor and the doctor does a serologic or blood test and the blood test is negative, remember, it might be negative because you're catching it too early before the antibodies form. So please get retested in four to six weeks. The tests aren't perfect, but they're certainly helpful. That's and, that's number one. Number two. Are, yeah, mm-hmm, sorry. Yeah, number two is to, to just remember these these um, ticks carry not just the agent of mm. Lyme disease, but they carry other tick-borne diseases such as uh, anaplasmosis, babesiosis, Lone Star ticks carry ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. So there's a whole bunch of organisms, uh, babesiosis. Um, that are carried by these ticks. Now, fortunately, doxycycline treats most of them. Another organism that is carried by ticks that most doctors don't even know about, but causes an illness almost exactly like Lyme disease is Borrelia miyamotoi. Borrelia miyamotoi was only discovered in the United States in 2013. Uh, It causes symptoms very much like Lyme disease with viral-like symptoms, neurologic symptoms. But if you get the Lyme test, it'll be negative. So the doctors might say you have a viral illness or the doctors might say, I don't know what's going on with you. But that's because they don't know to test for Borrelia miyamotoi. And there's both a PCR and an antibody test for Borrelia miyamotoi. So that's highly promising. And a website maybe that people could contact you if they wanted to come to New York to see you and or read more about Lyme disease? Absolutely. Columbia-Lyme.org. Columbia-L-Y-M-E.org. And I think it's very important that, I mean, I can't think of any positive outcomes of COVID, but they're what we would say silver linings or lessons learned. And now that more people are familiar with the term antibody, understand that it takes a while for your body to react to certain diseases like Lyme disease. So as Dr. Fallon said, if your initial testing for Lyme is negative, ask your doctor to repeat the test in two to three weeks. And if you have a negative COVID with flu-like symptoms, that is not the only show in town. Make sure that we keep Lyme front and center. If you, and especially if you live, live near woods or you think you've been exposed. Any other parting words, Brian? Well, you know, you mentioned COVID, and I think one of the things that's been helpful for the Lyme patients, I think, is the fact that long COVID is now recognized as a real entity, that people can be profoundly ill, and it starts months after, let's say, the COVID infection, or initially right away, but it can also start later, and it can be extremely debilitating. And the same is true for Lyme disease. You can get the infection and not know that you've gotten it, and then three to six months later, start getting this really 
profound illness, which is long Lyme as opposed to long COVID. Uh, and uh, I think because of long COVID, most doctors are now more respectful of the concept that people can have persistent symptoms after Lyme disease. It's a great parallel. So, for so much, for so long, these patients have been invalidated, and they have been told they're making it up, that it's all in their head, and that's profoundly disturbing. It's disturbing for the patient. It creates conflict between the doctor and the patient. Um, and now, because we're more respectful that infections can be really tricky, and we don't really understand them completely, and what the sequelae are of these infections, I think that that's been helpful. Well, just like the mom who persisted in Old Lyme, Connecticut, we thank you for your persistence and really looking at the whole chessboard because so many situations, people say, I'm a this specialty or that specialty, and we have to remember that medicine is a science and an art, and you have combined the two so beautifully. Thank you so much, Brian. You've, you're a beacon of light and hope for people, and I, I really appreciate you being here today. And I want to thank you for this opportunity and what you're doing is absolutely fantastic. Oh. So thank you. Checks in the mail, Brian. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. And now for your real champion, I call this segment, Sid Made His Mark. Last week, Philadelphia lost a legend. For over 65 years, Sid Mark lent his smooth, comforting voice to the airwaves and brought the beautiful sounds of Sinatra into our homes, our cars, and our lives every weekend. He was the host of the longest-running, single-artist, syndicated radio program in America. His show aired in more than 80 stations across the U.S., but Philadelphia claimed him as our own. He was as Philly as a soft pretzel, right up there with the Mummers and Rocky Balboa. But unlike other icons of Philadelphia, Sid offered more than entertainment. His dedication to broadcasting perpetuated an era. The timeless music of Frank Sinatra appeals to multiple generations, our grandparents, our parents, baby boomers like me, and now our children. So what's the appeal of Frank Sinatra anyway? Well, for starters, he had a song for every mood, every occasion. His songs could be uplifting, romantic, or a reflection of his own heartaches. He was talking to us with the lyrics and how he phrased them. Imagine saying goodbye to the love of your life before he or she goes off to a world war. Maybe the last stance they shared was to just the way you look tonight. Maybe they got engaged to the words, I will love being loved by you. And maybe what gave them hope when they were separated by continents were the words, I'll be looking at the moon, but I'll be seeing you. Last summer, I was riding my bike at the shore, and I heard Frank Sinatra's voice floating on the sea breeze singing The Summer Wind. It was a party of all millennials. Sid Mark was the vehicle that kept Sinatra and the post-war era alive, a time when people came home from war, were grateful to be alive, and proud to be American. People looked to a bright future, and Frank Sinatra was there to remind them with songs like High Hopes and The House I Live In. 1963, we got a color TV for Christmas, just in time to see the Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show. A year later, we got a new coffee table. It had a lid that opened to reveal a turntable with two speakers. 
How cool. A stereo in our living room with nonstop Sinatra. Many a time I'd find my parents dancing cheek to cheek in the kitchen or on the porch. Maybe they felt an extra connection to Sinatra because my father's name was also Frank. Just after we were married, my husband and I moved to New York for our medical training. It was the mid-1980s. My parents were a little worried about their baby moving to the Big Apple. But as we unpacked, we turned on the stereo and what popped up? But Fridays with Frank. And when I heard Sid Mark, I knew I was going to be all right. I knew I could make it anywhere. Two years ago, the topic of our show was music as medicine. I had the absolute joy of interviewing Sid, hearing about his close friendship with Frank and how he came to be the leading authority on all things Sinatra. In fact, he was the only person authorized by Frank Sinatra to host a syndicated show. What made the show really special? Sid shared stories and insights that made the music come alive. Personally, I have eclectic taste in music. I love classical, rock, I listen to a ton of R&B, and I'm still trying to perfect my robot and my pop and lock moves. But when I hear Sid Mark's soothing voice and Sinatra's magnificent melodies, I understand why it's regarded as therapy. Sid was our real champion in October of 2020. His show wasn't a job. It was a vocation to preserve memories from the past and help make new ones for the future. Fans were loyal to Sinatra and just as loyal to Sid. Every week, he received hundreds of emails thanking him. Your music helped me heal after surgery or reminds me of our first date. Frank Sinatra himself said, it's wonderful to have a friend like Sidney. I've only had four or five in my career, people who stay when things are dark and don't change when everything else changes. Every week, Sid's show ended with Sid telling Frank he loved him, and Sinatra would reply, I love you too, Sidney. We all love Sid Mark, and we will dearly miss him. It is with a collective heavy heart that we say goodbye to our beloved doctor of music and memory keeper. Our love and prayers go to Sid's wife, Judy, his children, Eric, Stacy, Andy, and Brian, and grandson, Jason. Sid was so dedicated in his lifetime, he never took a vacation. But he was happy, and in the end, I'm sure he looked back and said, I did it my way. We salute you, Sid Mark. You're a real champion. Thank you for listening this week and every week. Invite a friend or family member to listen. You can hear all of our shows again on yourradiodoctor.com. Thanks also to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, along with support from Recovery Centers of America and the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. Great news. Rothman Orthopedics now serves Central Florida with 14 physicians sports medicine, trauma and fracture care, hip and knee replacements, hand and wrist, shoulder, elbow. Later this year, they'll add spine care, podiatry, physical medicine and rehab, and they'll be the first orthopedic oncology program in Central Florida. Also, their innovation tower is now under construction in downtown Orlando due to open later this summer. So if you need hip or knee surgery, you can still find great Rothman care in Florida and stay there to recuperate. Friends, there is a critical shortage in our national blood supply. Think about donating blood. Visit redcross.org. Here's wishing you a happy, healthy, safe week with the ones you love. Take a moment to do something nice for somebody each day. 
This is your radio doctor, Marianne Ritchie, always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. 